0: Brethren, all over this world, people are crying out, directly or indirectly. Some of them are not saying it in that many words, but nevertheless, they are crying out, many directly, for righteous government. And when you read about the terrible dictatorships in Africa, in the Middle East, in various parts of Latin America and uh, Asia, these people are crying out, what's wrong? And I know in Afghanistan, they're having a lot of corruption. And over in Pakistan, as you know, they've had this terrible, awful flooding with hundreds of them. I think it's over 1,200 already dead. And they're wondering what's wrong with their government. And they're wondering what's wrong with their government and a lot of other situations in that part of the world. And as you know, all around the world, they're having an awful lot of problems realizing that the main instrument that could solve that problem is government. Is my voice coming through okay, Cheryl? It is okay that they need to turn it up. My, they could turn it up. Anyway, I know that we don't often think about that, but we should because our whole message, brethren, is about government, the coming kingdom of God or government of God. And we do need to think about how important that is. Even here in the United States, we read almost daily about corrupt officials and uh, corrupt officials in business, and corrupt officials in government all over. And I'd better start naming, not name names, I mean, and get myself in trouble here. But uh, they're all over the place, state governors and senators and representatives, and, and you name it, to the very highest levels, people are corrupt. And they need righteous government and the whole way a lot of these things are set up. As you read all kinds of editorials, even in the Wall Street Journal, they play dirty tricks on us. They say, we're just going to spend this much and all of a sudden we find they're spending this much and they're indebting our whole nation for generations to come. So we need righteous government and God talks about that again and again in the Bible. And brethren, many of you know this, some of you may not. But right now, not in just one fellowship, I'm not just talking about the main one, but there are four or five that are having trouble with government right now. And hundreds of their brethren are beginning to leave because of governmental problems. They don't know how to organize themselves and they've gone off on the wrong path directly contrary to what Mr. Herbert Armstrong taught us for decades and they should know better and that's hurting them and hurting them terribly right now so we need to understand governments because we in God's church are being trained we ought to be being trained at least right now in righteous government we really should that's one reason we're called now as Mr. Armstrong said and I think most of you understand that one reason we're called now is not just for personal salvation but to do the work of God to get out the message and also to be prepared to be those kings and priests, you know, in the coming tomorrow's world, and the coming kingdom of God, to rule over all nations. And we ought to be thinking about that. That is our training. And how are people being trained in these fellowships who don't even understand, or they at least have rejected, they should have understood, most of their leaders, but they have directly rejected the right form of government and the right kind of government. So they are going to have a great deal of trouble in the future. We know that. So, brethren, we think about that. Are we learning and respecting the right kind of government? That's the thing I'm going to talk about this afternoon. We have an awful lot of evidence throughout the world that wrong government brings problems in churches, in organizations, and certainly in entire nations. Mr. Armstrong found, if you read his old articles and if you read his autobiography, he had to leave the Sardis church because they were not able to do the right thing or even preach the right truth because of wrong government. They had politics. Well, will your people go along with this? And will your people go along with that? And he used to explain that to us a great deal in the early years of Ambassador College. And it made people water down because the ministers couldn't feel free to preach the truth. And they had to kind of go along and have this political approach even to doctrine and plus the practices of the church and so on. So he finally had to leave because he wanted to preach the Israel truth, for instance, of our national identity, and he wasn't allowed to do that. And other people came in and wanted to water other things down, and he gives example after example of that. And if you read Richard Nichols' book on the history of the Seventh-day Churches, then he describes how the confusion And uh, he was a man in the Church of God for many years and worked out of the uh, feast office, I think, at Pasadena. And he has a very good book on that. And it shows because they had all this politicking and watering things down and all these various Sardis groups that he described, it simply crippled their effectiveness because they did not have right government. I'd like to read. I started to bring stuff here, some clippings out of the world to show bad government and some other stuff. And I could but I realized I wouldn't have time because I want to finish somewhat on time and I've got so many scriptures that if I start reading all that stuff, it would take the whole time. So I'm just telling about you about it. A lot of you older brethren know about that and have read these things. God used, in spite of his human faults, because he did have human faults and we do not worship him, but God did use Herbert W. Armstrong to do a bigger work to reach the world with the kingdom of God And the knowledge of the Sabbath, even the Seventh-day Adventists, met with a number of our leaders at one point, the Church of God leaders, that acknowledged that he taught more people about the Sabbath during his ministry than they did or any other person on the earth. And he taught more people about the kingdom of God in our modern time than anyone on earth. God did use him powerfully. And he talks about the 18 truths As all you older members remember, he wrote that up, and that's been published a number of times, the 18 truths that he restored. Number one, number one was the government of God. That was number one, and he talked about that many times because he came to realize over decades how important that was. He didn't talk about that a great deal when I first came to Ambassador College but as we had all these problems and people would leave and people would try to attack him and cause division, he came to realize, and then he reflected back on the the fact that that was the very thing that caused all these problems in the Sardis church. And so a number of times he said, and I think Mr. Partian will remember this, he said, the whole thing is government. (laughs) Do you remember that, Mr. Partian? The whole thing. That's the way he'd say it. You know, he'd emphasize certain words. The whole thing is government. And that's true. And one thing, way of looking at it, there are different ways of coming at things, of course. And one uh, uh, milieu, let's say, or one spectrum of looking at, at Christianity, the whole thing is love. That's the greatest quality in the universe. And then in one situation there, in Ephesians, talking about overcoming Satan, Ephesians chapter 6, he says, first, take the shield of faith. So in that context, faith is important you know you can come at these things different points of view or different aspects of christianity but when you think about the whole message of the bible it does have to do with love it does have to do with faith it does have to do with the 10 commandments which you keep personally but in the overall thing what are we preparing for government the coming kingdom of god i returned from the kingdom of her majesty queen elizabeth ii a few months ago i've been over there for this campaign in london and of course it's officially the kingdom uh, the united kingdom of, of, of great britain or of england and uh, scotland and wales and northern ireland it's a kingdom it's a government as mr armstrong said kingdom means government and the churches don't seem to understand that and most of you grew up in Protestant churches or Catholic churches and you didn't have that drummed into your mind so when you don't think about when you think about kingdom I mean you don't automatically think government but you should kingdom means government so we need to understand what our very gospel is about and certainly a lack of the right kind of government has hurt people in all kinds of churches and God did use Mr. Armstrong to restore of course that important truth of the government of God, and we need to get back to that. Yet people have forgotten that so quickly. Some of the ministers who studied right under him and have every reason to know that it followed have not done it. So let's understand this vital topic, brethren, because it really is important. Let's go back to the very beginning, as Mr. Armstrong himself used to do. And I'm not following any outline he gave here, by the way, but certainly I learned much of this. Uh, from Mr. Armstrong, and I helped him, and Dr. Hay and I both helped him understand it ourselves, frankly, at one point. Back in Genesis, if you would, turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and after creating the heavens and the earth and all the animals and creatures, it says in verse 26, then God said, and the Hebrew word, as you know here, is Elohim, more than one, the personality who was God, including God the Father and the Lagos, the spokesman who became Jesus Christ. God said, let us men make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion. And he begins to say that and later on he said he, he made them male and female and in verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that gets into one aspect of government. The government we have today is beginning to approve same-sex marriage, and they have a judge out in California who has now overruled the vote of the people. And as George Will said in the editorial in Newsweek magazine some years ago, but just a very few, we have judgeocracy, quite often in the United States rather than democracy. When you don't have God in charge, you don't really have many times democracy. You will have judgeocracy, or you would have an oligarchy of key people who control everything, and it's not really the right kind of government. And even if you have democracy, that's not God's government either, as most of you know. But anyway, He made the male and female. He said, "Be fruitful and multiply." And one of the recent articles in our local paper about how these men were hugging each other after this perverted judge's decision out there, why they showed how John hugged his husband. Think about that. He hugged his husband. Sick. We are a sick society where we even having newspapers, our local paper even, talking about that kind of thing in that way rather than expressing absolute horror that this kind of thing is taking place in our midst because man has rejected the government of God man has rejected the word of God man has rejected the commandments of God and we've turned away from everything and our nation is going down and down and down because of that and we need to understand that's a key reason so he said be fruitful two men can't be fruitful and multiply they cannot do that. God based marriage on the fact that a man and a woman could have children. And two men can't have children. And two women can't have children. And have dominion. So he gave them dominion over the whole creation, which means government. And so from the very beginning, man was made in God's image with the kind of judgment to a limited degree, the kind of creative imagination that God has. To make decisions and to have dominion and learn right government from the very way they were made at the beginning. So it goes back to God's original purpose, and we need to understand it. Yet over in chapter 2, it talks about here how in verse 7, Genesis 2, verse 7, "...the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth, bringing to into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, and he put him in the Garden of Eden." And he put the tree of life there also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The story goes on to show that Adam and Eve took of what? They took a mixture. Think about it. Democracy is not all evil. The United States is not doing all evil. There's some mixed good that's mixed in with the various things we're doing. But it's partly evil. And in the end, it destroys. It destroys whenever you water down what God says. It was a mixture of good and evil. And so we have to realize that when men water down things like that, why, it hurts. God says, you shall do what I shall do, and you shall not add to it or take from it. He says that two or three times in the Old Testament. I won't turn to that. There's so many things I'd like to turn to, but most of you know that. You're not supposed to change what God said. God said, don't do that. But people have done it even in the church of God, and they're suffering for it and will suffer right now. One group said they couldn't have one-man government because of what happened with Mr. Dukat. So what did they do? They threw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because one man turned aside, do you change the whole form of government? No, you do not. You do what God said, and if a man gets in there that's evil, and if you were in a, car- in a carnal nation, you might have to flee to another nation. You wouldn't want to kill the man, the king, that's an evil king. Or in our day, if the man's turned completely away from God, as God tells you in the New Testament a number of times you're to obey God rather than man if there is a direct conflict. Then you would have to leave such an organization. You see what I mean? And yet if the man is a righteous man, not perfect, no man's ever been perfect, but the truth is being taught. As I've said, the three big things to watch for is the truth being taught, number one. Is the work of God really being done, number two. And is the government of God being carried out? Not any of them perfectly, Because no one has ever carried out all of those perfectly except Jesus Christ. But if those three things are being accomplished, that is where God is working. That is where God is working. And you need to check that out. Once you have proved that to yourself, that there is one church that is primarily doing those things better than others, that's where Christ is going to be primarily. Not that the others are not His churches at all. He tells the Laodicean church which is described in Revelation 3 as one of the churches of God. But he says, I will spit you out of my mouth. So they are called one of the churches of God, but because they water things down and because they're lukewarm, he says, I, Christ, will spit you out of my mouth. Most of you know that. Revelation chapter 3. So you have to make a choice once in a while. But as long as the church is doing the work of God, preaching the truth, and exercising and practicing the government of God, you'd better learn to respect that government because that form of government comes from God. And you don't try to change the whole government just because one man makes a mistake. You don't do that. I'll give you an illustration of that later in the sermon. Now let's go to Isaiah, brethren. Let's go from Genesis here to Isaiah. And I want to turn to Isaiah, trying to find my marking here, but Isaiah, anyway, chapter 14. Most of you know where I'm turning, if I can get it here. Isaiah 14, and beginning in verse 12. Nearly all scholars recognize this as talking about Satan the devil here, by the way. That's not some peculiar doctrine of ours how are you fallen from heaven, O oh, Lucifer, God says, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you great, powerful, beautiful cherub, you know, whom God created, who weakened the nations? For you said in your heart, this great cherub, God created three great super archangels, Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. And Lucifer was one of the three, and he turned aside and rebelled against God's government, and took with him one-third of the angels who became demons. He said, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'm going right up to heaven and fight God. I will be like the Most High. Yet you will be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest pits of the depths of the pit. So God talks about bringing Lucifer down. I'd read Ezekiel chapter 28. Look, that's a companion chapter, but we're not just talking about Satan for this whole sermon. So you can read that. You know how that says essentially the same thing and adds other details. How Lucifer actually walked in the garden of God and he was in the kingdom of God. Obviously, he was with God at creation. Satan rebelled because of envy and resentment against God. And this attitude often comes up when people rebel against the government of God. You cannot. God has learned that lesson through Lucifer. God is not going to have rebels in his kingdom. Let me repeat that. God is not going to have rebels in his kingdom. What's going to happen to people who rebel against the government of God? I'm not their judge. I'm not judging every aspect, but frankly, many, God directly does indicate that many of these people, even in God's church, as you read Revelation chapter 3 again, who rebel against God, will probably have to go through the great tribulation. They will have to go through fire, and God will humble them, and they will be literally shaking and crying. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then after they have learned their lesson, repented, they can be in God's kingdom. But they will probably not be taken to the place of safety. And I would like all of you and all who hear this sermon to be taken to the place of safety. And if you're going to be taken to the place of safety, and if you're going to be in the first resurrection, the better resurrection, and have a really good reward in God's kingdom, you would want to be part of and loyal to the true government of God, and you would want to be participating in that government, understanding that government, being part of that government, and learning how to execute it properly, because that's why we're here. That's why God has called us now. If He just wanted to call us for our personal salvation, He could have called us during the millennium or some other time. But he called us today so we could do the work of God and so we could learn and practice the government of God and be in that first resurrection and be the kings and priests that Christ is preparing. So we do not want to understand that. No, God is not going to have rebels. He saw what happened with Satan. So God is testing us. He's testing these people who are having these troubles right now. They're being tested and tested and tested. We should pray for them not against them for them say father in heaven please help them help them understand help them wake up help them come out of that and to come where your government is being taught and practice and where your work is being done and where the full truth is being taught pray for them in that way not against them we love them i have many in these different groups not just one but two or three of the different groups that i know and love very much I could name their names, but should not do that. I'm not trying to talk about just one group. Some go too far to the left, and some go too far to the right. You know, the ones on the right kind of have their own dictator and and, uh, so on, and misuse government. Others on the left, and there are two or three that water everything down, and they have a kind of democracy, one of the most leftist groups of all, I've talked to three or four different people from different families with them. And I know one of them was kind of prancing in and visiting our church years ago. And they said, well, we're so-and-so and and we're kind of loosey-goosey, you know. That's what this woman said. She said, we're kind of loosey-goosey. That's right, they are. They would just go and shop on the Sabbath for furniture or anything like that and so on. But anyway, they know, but they don't let it penetrate their brain as to how serious that is. That is serious stuff, because God is watching us. He is preparing us to be kings and priests in a few years. Will we learn right government and practice right government? We've got to learn to do that. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 now, if you would, brethren, and your New Testament. Turn back at this point to Hebrews and chapter 2, and a famous passage we often refer to in various lights, but beginning in verse God talks about us for He has not put the world to come tomorrow's world the resurrection of which we speak in subjection to angels they're not the main ones God is going to be working with but one testified in a certain place saying what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him why does God reach way down with us little human beings I know that Many men strut around and try to act very important and so on. But from God's point of view, we're a bunch of ants crawling around on this anthill here out in space called the earth. We're a little tiny anthill compared to God. And he's watching us. Some are strutting around. They're acting, I'm the most important man, ant, you know. And uh, they they have this attitude And all of us are ants. As Winston Churchill said, he said, I know that we're all worms, but I do believe that I am a glow worm. And, of course, uh, you know, that's the way many people are. And we've all got to be careful. We all have vanity. We've got to be careful how uh, how we act with that, how we handle that. You made him a little lower or a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and notice, and set him over the works of your hands. He set him over. He has given man in his plan and purpose dominion over everything. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then Paul continues here in verse 8, For in that he put all, and the Greek word here means everything in the universe, as some of the commentaries explain, all in subjection under him. He left nothing nothing that is not put under Him, we are eventually going to help Christ rule not only this whole earth, perhaps even other creations on other planets. doesn't say that, but there are implications as you read back in uh, Daniel and back in Isaiah is the main one I'm thinking of now where it says, if the increase of His kingdom, there is no end. God's kingdom is keep increasing and building. So certainly there are many indications God will keep on working, He'll keep on building, He'll keep on creating, and once He has thousands and later millions of full sons of God, great spirit beings composed of the Holy Spirit, we see whole universes out there that are empty and nothing is happening so you kind of, as you project from what God is doing now, you begin to realize there, there are a lot of exciting times ahead. We think, we, we think, boy, we're, we're you know, we're, we're doing something important now. And then some people in the church, you know, if, if George is ordained a deacon or Mary's husband named George is ordained a deacon and your husband isn't, well, I'm all mad at them because they got to be a deacon. Well, one of the evangelists who is very highly intelligent mentioned to me decades ago, He said, you know, whatever job we have in this work today or in this life is God's kingdom, if we're an evangelist or a vice president or no matter what it is, a lot of you think, well, if I could have some big job like that. He said, and, and it's true, he said, it's absolutely nothing compared to what we're going to have later on. It's so small, it's not even going to be a blip on the radar screen. And I hope all of you can sort of understand that because I know there is that human nature to compete with one another and be jealous if someone gets a big job and you don't or your job is changed or you're transferred or put down or whatever. It's tiny. It's like little boys playing in a sand pile. You know what I mean? It really is. God is watching here and watching there. I've had to be up and down the elevator many, many times. And I've told you that. I used to kid, I said, I've trained most of my bosses, because <laughs> except for Mr. Herbert Armstrong. But Ted Armstrong was in my Bible classes, and I taught him to speak. Pete, did you teach Ted to speak? Not really. He already had his father's voice and wonderful personality. But in advanced public speaking and homiletics, I taught him how to outline and, and organize a sermon. And he thanked me for that three or four times. And when he stuck to that outline, he would always do better. Otherwise, he'd sort of wander around, as some of you know, and uh, had a wonderful personality, but after he got through, you weren't sure what he said. But he <laughs> he did have that voice and personality. And I taught Al Pertune, who was my vo- uh, boss, indirectly or directly, and Charles Hunting and David Annan and Ron Dart, who were over at church at uh, different ones, were in my classes. So I learned to train my bosses, and I had to humble myself and realize, this kid I'm teaching now, he might be my boss in a few years. Because some of them were. And, and take that and put up with it and say, okay, I'm going to keep right on and learn from this and try to learn from this. Did I do all of that perfectly? No. No, I didn't. I had a wrong attitude on occasion, but I didn't act on it. I tried to pray about it, fast about it, get rid of it, and I hung in there. And you can too. You can too. Don't expect us to be perfect. There will not be a perfect government of God until the resurrection from the dead then it will be perfect. But not until then. But if I or Mr. Ames would have to take over, if we're here, and I hope you would be every bit as loyal to him as most of you have been to me, and try to carry on the government of God and keep the unity that we've had, don't expect it to be perfect under him or perfect under anybody, because it's not going to be that way. We're human. But if the church, if the work is still being done, and the truth is still being preached and the government of God and we're learning that then keep your eye on the big picture and do not turn aside into foolishness or rebellion so that's the whole thing no, we're being trained to rule through the whole universe so we've got to learn right government now brethren turn back to the gospel of Mark if you would turn back to the gospel of Mark here in Mark chapter 1 again a very famous verse here Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching what? Love the Lord. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so as we used to sing in Methodist Sunday school. No. Jesus said he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God which means the government of God. He said there were times he was the Messiah, but his main message was not about his person, but about the coming government of God and the laws of God and the way of God. That's what he primarily preached, not about himself. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. He was there. The way into that kingdom was then made available. And he said, repent and believe the gospel so you have to repent of your sins and then believe what God says and be willing to do it obviously so the true good news is about our calling and our calling is to be kings and priests and a coming government it's not just that Jesus died that's part of it but the rest of it is the whole future ahead to be members of the very family of God Members of the kingdom of God, members of the government of God under Jesus Christ over this whole earth and on into eternity. Now turn, if you would, to Luke 19, brethren. Luke chapter 19 in your New Testament. Here, now as they heard these things, he'd been speaking some parables. He spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought, these carnal Jews thought, or his disciples primarily we're talking about here, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. But you, you can understand, can't you, from the context, He was the, they didn't think the kingdom of God was a warm feeling in your heart like John Wesley felt. It wasn't some emotional thing but the kingdom of God, the government of God was going to come and they hoped that would happen and and this Jesus would kick out the Roman armies and the occupation forces and take over. They thought that was going to happen right then. So Jesus said a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive a kingdom and to return and he called a service, delivered each one ten minas and he comes back and then he found what they had done with the money which is a symbol of the uh, opportunities they had to serve, to accomplish, to overcome, obviously, that he might know how every man had gained by trading. Then he came to the first, verse 16, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. You've increased ten times what I gave you. And so what did Jesus say? Oh, wonderful. I'm going to give you a great big harp And you can go up to heaven and play on a harp and have ice cream cones all day. But nothing else to do. No, he didn't say that. He said, well done, good servant, because you were faithful over very little. Have authority, government over ten cities. And then he went on to the next man who increased fivefold, five cities. The pattern was always there talking about government. Now what do the Protestants do with this? They either throw it in the ash can completely or else they say that the ten cities are just a symbol and they don't really mean there's not a real government and Christ, most of them, they don't think Christ is really coming back. Some few of them do, but they, they spiritualize it away. The main uh, mainstream Protestants have a way of doing that. But that, obviously, these kind of examples are given all through the Old Testament. They're given all through the New Testament. There's no exception. He's talking about real cities, a real government over this real earth right here, over and over. He says that. Turn to Luke chapter 22 now. Let's turn to chapter 22 and verse 28. He's talking to the disciples here near the end of his life. And he said, You are those who continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom. This is Luke 22, verse 29. A kingdom or a government, just as my Father bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging. And they all knew what that meant, judging. And the judges ruled Israel. You know, so, uh, uh, Moses was a judge, like a king and priest combined, and Samuel was and others judging the twelve tribes of Israel, so their reward was what learning to be kings and priests, to be judges each one of them over a whole nation of Israel. One of the twelve apostles, we don't know which one will be judge over our whole peoples later on in Manasseh, who will be judge over Manasseh, another one will be judge over Ephraim which would be the peoples in the British Empire uh, and so on others will be judges over Holland Zebulun and France Reuben and the other nations of Israel and then others who are not the twelve but will judges over the Gentile nations around the world but all under Jesus Christ who will be king of kings And there won't be jealousy and there won't be upset because everyone will have Christ as their king and there will be righteous government at that time. So he talks about this in the Bible over and over, very literal. Turn back to chapter 2 of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 26, again a famous scripture. Jesus said, he's speaking in the first person as you know, and he who overcomes and keeps my works, his whole way of life, until the end. you got to do it till the end, brethren. Don't just start out. To him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a the rod of iron. Do what? Not sit on thrones with, with harps or something, but rule over nations as the potter's vessel shall be broken in pieces, as I also received from my Father. So Christ had that job, but He says, I'm going to give it to the overcomers. You and I have to be overcomers. We have to overcome our human nature. We have to overcome the world and its poles. We have to overcome Satan the devil. And if we're overcomers, we will be given literal governmental jobs under the King of Kings, Jesus Christ turn back to Revelation chapter 5 now in verse 9 you're talking here about in verse 9 the prayers of the saints in verse 9 they sang a new song saying you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you Christ were slain and have redeemed us he's our redeemer to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests and priests so, God, in His plan, has done it. Nothing can stop it as long as we do our part. You have made us in His plan. He has planned and 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 worked it out, so that the saints will be kings and priests unto our God, and we shall reign where up in heaven, no, we shall reign on the earth. Read it. Some of you are newer here. I know read it on the earth, not up in heaven. The kingdom of God will be here on the earth. The Seventh-day Adventists are nice people, but they think we're going off to heaven for a thousand years and uh, go over the books and have what they call an investigative judgment uh to try to decide what happens to other people. But the Bible doesn't talk anything about that at all, and it says the kingdom will be here on the earth. doesn't say the saints will go over the books at all. That's uh, Ellen G. White's... Uh, very fervid imagination that she had. Anyway, let's turn. Remember now, brethren, in this these passages, we're training to be kings and priests. Let me say again: many of our brethren in the living church of God, because they have various problems, some of them get upset at their local minister, or they'll get upset at a deacon. They are being tried and tested you will be tried and tested at one time or the other about the government of God. I have been tried and tested again and again and again by the government of God. And I don't want to go through all the stories. I've told you some of them. I wouldn't have room to tell you all the different times. I've seen some things done wrong. But if I had got upset and left, I would not be here now. And all I can say is that I'm thankful that I was willing to take correction sometimes deserved sometimes undeserved but try to carry on look to the big picture look to christ to straighten it out in the end and in the end he always has and in the end he always will he is god in the end he will straighten it out you see and of course i was loyal as most of you older people know, who have been around a while, there are several of you. I don't want to name all of it, but Mrs. McNair and Mr. and Mrs. Parting, and many others here, Mr. and Mrs. Davis, and others. I was loyal to Mr. DeCotch. Mr. DeCotch, I trained him. I let him be ordained a deacon, and later joined Mr. Blackwell in ordaining him an elder, and then I brought him to Pasadena with a strong recommendation from Mr. Blackwell, his regional pastor. And that was the beginning of trouble, but I didn't know that back then. So I liked him all right, his hearty personality, although I knew he couldn't preach very well. I said, well, Dean, he can't preach. Well, he works hard, and so I'll bring him anyway. But most of you know what happened, because he didn't really understand doctrine. But when he called me that December, or January 16th morning, and said, Rod, he said, Mr. Armstrong just died And I want to have a meeting of the Council of Elders over here and have a picture taken, too. And Well, I went by his office before that and said, Mr. Dekotts, here he was, a fellow I had helped hire and bring out and took some classes for me and so on. I'd been his boss for many years. I said, I will certainly be loyal to you and follow you as long as you follow Christ and try to follow the pattern of Mr. Armstrong, as you've said, and so on. And I'll certainly do that. And he says, Well, don't call me Mr. Dekotch. I You know, he tried to get everyone to call him Joe. And I had been for a year or two. At first I resisted because we did one of the older men to call him Joe. But then at that point I said, No, Mr. dekoch I'm not going to call you Joe anymore. You're in a very special office as the human leader over the church. And that one in that office should be called Joe or Jack or John or whatever. Your closest personal friends and family can call you that but I don't think most of the ministering brethren should go around calling you Joe so I never called him that again even though he misused his office and got all confused nevertheless he was in an office and that office should have been respected and I tried to respect it and I hope you would respect the office that I have I then had to leave you say well you left a church yes I could have left three years earlier when Gerald Flurry left and I was called by his son who tried to encourage me to come with them, but I could see and I, my wife, I'm sure can remember how I, remember I heard his program three or four times on the radio and got his magazine and she says, Rod, why are you doing that? I said, I know he was my student, but I, maybe God is using him. I at least check it out. Well, I could see that his magazine was filled with all kinds of inconsistencies and he was applying all kinds of scriptures the wrong way i had met his bible teacher was kind of silly some of the stuff he was doing so i knew it was right the one to follow and the arrogance he showed even back then and then we had been commanded by mr armstrong don't follow my son so i knew i shouldn't follow ted and i knew all the other stuff about ted's problem so I knew he was not the one to follow what could I do I waited and waited and finally five different things happened all in a period of about three or four months just one after the other I may have illustrated some of those but I better not go through that where I had to leave I had to leave and one of the leading evangelists at that time told me he said they're going to change everything and when I saw they were beginning to do that and the God is booklet came out presenting a false God and the whole concept of God and then other things happened then i had to leave i could not live with myself i felt i was responsible because i was the only one of the older evangelists was willing to leave was able to understand and i had to there wasn't any choice there wasn't any choice that i had and now here i am you say well why would you know you be the leader well i'm very weak I'm very human and I'm even weak physically now since my stroke as I've said Mr. Ames or others may have to carry on but knowing that I tell you and I hope I can do that not in vanity but I'm the only one of the original evangelists that's still alive. None of the rest of them are alive and older men from the earliest days are virtually all gone except Mr. Apartheon and he didn't go back quite that far but he has been loyal to God and loyal to mr armstrong's teaching and so on we're very grateful to have him with us doing the work of god but i had to leave and so that's why i'm here because that was responsibility i knew i had at that time i was the only one there that understood was able to do that and i did start the global church of god and christ started it through me as a human instrument we've now become the living church of god and it's carrying on the work of Herbert W. Armstrong and the work of the church preaching the truth more fully than any other group. And it's also doing the work more fully. And we're also having the government of God avoiding the two extremes. One extreme is loosey-goosey way over to the left and then others that are not quite as far to the left but water down this and water down that and do away with the church government. And a lot of them don't believe in you know church eras and they have various ideas about the trinity and five or six other errors some other groups have that problem then a couple of others are over to the right dictators and if you cross them they just kick you right out we don't have either extreme as all of you know who have been here a while we are not that way we're in between we're in the middle and balanced overall You say, are you perfectly balanced? No, I wish I were. (laughs) I think Christ is the only perfectly balanced man that's ever existed, of course. But we are more balanced in that approach than any other Church of God group on earth that I know about. And I think most of you know that. But the fruits, God is using us to do the work. And hundreds of these people are beginning to come with us from these other groups right now. One-third of the entire membership of one of the other groups has already come with us over in Britain, and others are starting to come from across the United States. We want to help these people understand government. When they say, we're all the same, we're all the same. My brethren, we are not all the same. This thing of government is tremendously important. And when they water down the government of God, they're in big trouble and some of their own ministers and brethren, I think, are beginning to realize that now more than ever. So anyway, we're being tested right now in our understanding and practice of right government. Now let's turn back to the Old Testament again. Here is the beginning, and I've given this before, so I'll go over it quickly, but the actual pattern of human government under Christ. This is the pattern that Christ Himself set. He was the Logos. As you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he was the rock of ancient Israel. 1 Corinthians ten four. That rock was Christ. He was in charge here. And so he guided Moses and in Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. It was so the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. He was their judge, their ruler, and their prophet that Moses sat to judge them and the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. They were standing and waiting to get to him and it took hours to get to him. Everyone was tired and wondering, how when can I get a hearing? And his father-in-law came and you obviously see by the story, God guided the father-in-law said, what are you doing? Why are you all these people standing in big lines? And when they have a difficulty, Moses said, they come and I judge between one and another and I make them to know the statutes of God and His laws. Verse 16, now verse 17. So Moses' father-in-law said, The thing you do is not good. You'll all wear out. Listen. And he says, You shall stand before God so that you bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Verse 21 is the key verse. And God led Moses to do that. That's the point. Later King David did that and other kings of Israel did that as you read very clearly. This was the pattern that God Himself set which has never been changed all through the Old Testament all through the New Testament. You shall select, or you could say appoint, there was no voting, no politic, and no one saying, well, I'll make a speech, as some groups have to make a speech and try to get up and make their political speech showing how they ought to be the president or they ought to be this or that. You shall select from all the people, able men. He had to check out getting counsel. And by the way, I don't have time to go into that, but four or five times during the book of Proverbs, which I've mentioned to you many times, it says, in multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. We must practice that. We must practice that. In multitude of counsel, there is wisdom. And we in the living church of God have a council of elders. And if I would preach heresy or commit some gross immorality of adultery or repeated drunkenness or thievery or something, they could kick me out for those things. But otherwise, they should follow my lead. But I have never overridden the council one time on anything of any importance. I doubt if I ever will. If I had to, I would if it's not directly against our bylaws. But it's something that was just terribly important to do to go on a new network or something. I suppose there could be something. But basically, we have never disagreed on those basic things because I listen to them and they listen to me and our usually our decision is virtually unanimous in nearly every case but select able men not women i'm not trying to put women down but most of you converted women know that god intended the men to be the judges here they had this very liberal uh unmarried uh woman uh judge coming in on the supreme court and uh the supreme court is being packed with liberals to try to change everything around that's another story But God had able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds and fifties and tens. So there was a hierarchical government, and you had... Then Moses was the main judge or leader, then under him rulers over thousands... And the implication in the Hebrew authorities tell us that really was used as families, a thousand families, which would often be five or seven or ten thousand people because they had big big families in those days. And then down less as you went on down. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they'll bring to you, but every small matter they will judge. And then they would bring the big decisions to Moses. And Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law And he did that, and God was with him, as you see. That was the pattern Almighty God set at the beginning, government from the top down. You don't have government from the bottom up. Government from the bottom up is confusion. Government from the bottom up leads to politicking, posturing, wheeling and dealing, and it leads to division, always. They say, we saw what happened which can happen sometimes with government from the top down, but it will always happen with the wrong kind of government. Always happen. Democracy has within it the very seeds of its destruction from the beginning because you've got to keep watering things down to please the majority. And that's what's happening in America, you see. They're trying to please everybody and they end up watering down, doubting down. It's going to keep right on till we go out of existence in a very few years within the next whatever it will be, 7 to 17 years or whatever. We don't know. But it's happening right before our eyes. So we've got to understand the pattern of government here by appointment and selecting. The leader selects those under him. Then you read in the uh, uh, books of Kings and Chronicles. Again, I won't turn. You don't have time. But King David did the same thing. You will see that King David appointed those under him in the same way. And then you read... In Deuteronomy chapter 1, if you turn over there at this point, Deuteronomy chapter 1, and beginning in verse uh, 12, Deuteronomy one twelve, Moses said, How can I alone bear your problems, your burdens, and your complaints? He says, I can't judge all of you. Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men. See, he would get counsel who is fit for this and talk to a lot of the other leaders. He couldn't talk to all three or five six million israelites individually that's obvious they didn't have a, a voting system but he talked to other leaders that he knew dedicated men got in council and he says i then will appoint them he says you you uh get these people like that and i will make them or appoint them heads over you and you answered me and said that's good so I took heads of your tribes, men who had proved themselves to be good leaders, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them, or appointed them, no voting. I made them uh, heads, they were the leaders, over you leaders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So he did that. And I commanded your judges at that time, verse 16, saying, Here are the cases between your brethren and judge righteously. He tells them over and over, Judge righteously. Between a man and his brother, and the stranger who is with you, they had Gentiles among them, and they had to be fair. There was to be one law for the for the uh, uh, Israelites, and, and the same law for the uh, for the for the Gentiles, the mixed multitude, so that they didn't have to persecute them. They didn't permit the wrong kind of slavery. They had bondage at that time, where often most of them were white Israelites who were bought by another white Israelite. Frankly, they would get out, they wouldn't work, and they didn't have a welfare system, so you'd become you kind of hire onto a wealthy family and, and in a sense you'd be a kind of a bond slave, but not the same way that we had in this country at all. And most of them were other just fellow Israelites at that time, and God allowed that in a carnal nation, but not the kind of slavery we had here in the South back then. But at any rate, they did work that out, and you're to show no partiality, and you're to have be fair to everybody. And he says, you're not to be afraid of any man's presence, uh, for the judgment is God's. You get the point? The judgment is God's. God was going to guide them in the judgment. The case is too hard for you. Bring it to me and I will hear it. So this is what God told them at that time. This was the pattern that Moses appointed these other leaders and that's what they were to do now turn to second chronicles if you would second chronicles and i'm going to uh hope i can find my thing here anyway oh yeah here it is second chronicles chapter 19 second chronicles chapter 19 And notice what God says here. He describes how Jehoshaphat began to prepare his heart to seek God. As you know, he was one of the most righteous kings of Judah, even though he made mistakes. Very righteous, Jehoshaphat. So, verse 4, 2 Chronicles 19, verse 4, Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, and he went out again And brought Ephraim back and others back to God. And he set judges in the land throughout all the fortified cities of Judah city by city and said to the judges take heed what you're doing for you do not judge for man but for who? You see Yahweh the ever living one the ever living one God who is with you in the judgment. Well my brethren that's in the Bible and we're to live by every word of God. And if the great God of heaven and earth, Almighty God, was with those carnal judges back then, because some of them had more than one wife and were afraid to do this and that, they didn't have God's Spirit. It was with them sometimes, but not in them. If He guided them in their judgment, how much more, think about it, how much more would He guide faithful ministers today who are crying out to Him for understanding and wisdom and to carry out the government of God? how much more would He guide us today? God, who is with you in the judgment. So He will be with us, and you have to have that confidence, and I do too. Does that mean every single decision that I make will be pleasing to all of you? No. Does that mean that everyone will be right? No. But it means the vast majority of the decisions that I would make, in concert with Mr. Ames and Mr. Uh, winnell and mr Pardin and mr crockett and mr rod mcnair and mr all the other ministers here i better quit naming them mr hernandez who's here now he'll be in our council here i have a many council here meeting together every week we have the big council of about 14 or 15 of us we meet about three times a year but the many council meets every week around my table there's just eight of us but we get multitude of council that way and so that way we can, handle the smaller points, we can discuss those every week or more often if we want to. Of course, we have a lot of counsel right here. More ministers are here than any other place on earth. So anyway, that is what they did. And God who is with you in the judgment, now therefore let the fear of the eternal be upon you and take care for there is no iniquity with the eternal, no partiality nor taking bribes. So you're to do the judgment the right way. Now they did have that governmental process though where they appointed this one and that one and then Moses said God will be with you in the judgment. And later Jehoshaphat said that and as David had before him. Now let's look to Luke going back to your New Testament again. Turn to Luke brethren this time uh, chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, here is Jesus, the Son of God. Again, setting us the example of the very thing He told everyone to do. It says in verse 12, Luke 6, verse 12, Now it came to pass in those days that He went out to the mountain to pray, and He continued all night in prayer to God. I've never done that. But I have tried to pray two or three hours on occasion about major things and asked God to guide us and lead us. He prayed all night to God and asked God's guidance and intervention and wisdom, even He, the Son of God. And when it was day, He calls disciples to Him, and from them He chose twelve. See, He appointed them. He didn't have any. No one gave any speeches. There was no politics, no voting, no voting. He chose twelve whom He named apostles. And then it tells how they went out And what they did and so forth. So that is the pattern that Jesus Christ Himself set in the Old Testament. And the pattern that He set in the New Testament. Now notice, brethren, as you turn to the book of Acts, if you would, turn to Acts uh, chapter 1 now of the book of Acts. Turn now, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. And here, as the New Testament starts, you see... Now they replaced Judas, who fell away, you know, and turned on Christ. It says, uh, they proposed two, he says in verse 22, this is chapter 1, verse 22, from the beginning, one who had been with them from the beginning, one of these must be witness with us of his resurrection to be among the original twelve. And they proposed Joseph and Justice, called Messiah, Matthias. You see, they proposed. In other words, they recommended, and apparently Peter accepted that. He was their leader calling this group together. And then they prayed. Did they vote? Did they politic? No. They prayed and said, You, O Eternal, you know the hearts of men. Show which of these two you have chosen. Some of these other groups have tried to say this was voting. There was no voting here. Peter decided to do it this way, was guided by God's Spirit to say this pattern was back there. You've got to choose one, replace this man, and have let another take his office. And here's what we should do. He was the one that set that in motion. No politicking. And they did do that. Then they prayed to God. And then they cast lots. Now, once the Holy Spirit came, you don't find any example, by the way, of casting lots. Once the Holy Spirit came inside, then with God's Spirit in you, the ministry should use wisdom, get counsel from each other, get counsel from the brethren, and various things that come up affecting the brethren too. For instance, we're planning to have a morning church plus an afternoon church unless Mr. League finds a really good hall where we can all meet together. And if it doesn't cost too much, you might pray about that, brethren. But if, if we do have to have it, we may have to assign some of you to go to the morning church. Now, I want you to get mad at Mr. Leek, not me, okay? (laughs) Okay. But I'll probably have to help make the decision. But at any rate, we'll try to obviously get input from you and see who wants to go to the morning church and let them go there first, and then who else could go without any stress or strain and make it where we could divide up and so on. We'll try to get input and have multitude of counsel and we'll try to be fair. We're you know, commanded by God to be fair. So they cast lots. And from then on, they never casted lots again. And the lot fell on Matthias. God, that was an appeal to God. Let me explain that a lot in the Old Testament times was an appeal to God. You show. And God, they knew that. And they'd seen by example that God did do that. And they trusted in that, and undoubtedly God did honor that. Then you turn back to chapter 6, if you would, of Acts. Here's one that they have misused, one of these other groups too, to try to say this means voting. It doesn't. And so it says in chapter 6, verse uh, 1, the numbers of the disciples was multiplying, and the widows were being neglected of the Greek-speaking Jews, and then the twelve, that is the apostles that Christ had appointed, summoned them all. Said it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. They weren't called to do that. So they said, they said, brethren, you seek out from among you. They didn't say we're going to have a vote. They said we want your counsel. And the apostles took the lead in this. Probably Peter was the main spokesman said it spoke for them after they'd talked together. You give us counsel as to who, which leading men would be the ones to do this. And out of that group, you see, they chose seven. So get these men's names of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint. Read it in the New King James, verse 3, whom we may appoint over this business. They appointed them, and the business was serving tables. They certainly didn't have an election, so it was always by appointment, by the selection or the choosing of the leadership that Christ had already appointed or put there. Then you turn to chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, brethren, and here you find how the disciples, Paul and Silas were, uh, and uh, uh, Barnabas were coming back from this mission. At the end of it, they'd been stoned. They're in verse 19, chapter 14, verse 19. They came right back through those cities, Lystra, Iconum, and Derby, verse 21, strengthened the disciples, and they said, verse 22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations, trials, and tests. So when they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Election? No. They appointed the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, appointed these people. There was no no voting, no politicking, nothing like that. That was the pattern i don't have time it goes on and on that's the only pattern there is you won't find any other i will give any of you one thousand dollars to show me any other example of government in the church that's actually clear in the bible in the bible not in your imagination there isn't any other i'll give that thousand dollars out of my own money by the way not the works i promise you show me in the bible any other example than this kind of example I'll be willing to risk that. It would be glad to learn it if if something like that because otherwise we might be preaching something false. But it's not there. I've offered on the radio to give $10,000 to get anyone to give any proof that God ever ordained any other day except the seventh-day Sabbath as a regular day of worship, you see. And no one's ever taken that because they can't do it. They just can't do it. The Bible is very clear that the seventh day is the Sabbath, no other day. But, at any rate, you have to understand that it's very clear these things are not a mystery they're very clear in the Bible, so they appointed all the way through. Then we turn to uh, brethren Ephesians, if you would now turn to the book of Ephesians and chapter one and here it talks in verse 19 about the great power of God which he worked in Christ, Ephesians one verse 20 when he raised him from the dead and gave him a his right, Set Him at His right hand in heavenly places Far above all principality and power and dominion And every name that is named Not only in this age but also in that which is to come And put Him, Christ, you see He put all things under His feet God put all things under Christ's feet And gave Him, Christ, to be the head over all things to the church Which is His body, the fullness of all and all he is the head. And brethren, I want to point this out to you. It says in Hebrews 13:8. 13, 13, verse 8, Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If Christ guided Moses to appoint people and set up that pattern, which is explained clearly, if he caused David to do it, a man after his own heart, if he caused Jehoshaphat to do it and all the other righteous kings, if Christ himself did it in appointing the twelve, and then we find that Peter and and Paul both appointed others, that's Christ's mind. That's what he did. He's the same. He's not going to change that. That is the way he ran his church, and that is the way he will run his church today, by appointment, government from the top down, guiding those in authority. And so when you doubt that, and when these people that start something else, some other form of government try to come up with that, what are they doing? They are showing a basic lack of faith, a great lack of faith in Christ and His ability to lead His church in the way that He has always done from the time of Moses until now. Think about it. God is not real to most of them, or they would not do that. They are showing a basic lack of faith in the ability of the living Christ to run His church in the way He said He would do and the way He always did do. Please remember that cardinal point. That is, that is vital. They're turning their backs on Christ Himself in and, and, and that way, you see, by doing this. Now, Christ uh, guided Paul then later on in this book uh, chapter 4 verse 11 Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says he Christ gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists some pastors and teachers it showed Christ set a hierarchy of ministers in the church he did that we have in the church today evangelists and pastors and teachers I have had at least 30 or 60 people tell me themselves, I never initiated this. In and We know you're an apostle because here you're doing all this and that, Mr. Meredith. Well, that could appeal to my vanity. but But I know that's not true. I said, no, I'm not an apostle. I'm not an apostle. If God wants me to be an apostle, He will cause the work to grow much more powerfully and He will have to give me unusual miracles, unusual miracles and power. If He does that, then maybe... Maybe he's showing I'm an apostle. But until that time, I have the same little vial of oil that Mr. Armstrong had. And I can anoint as any elder can. And I don't need a bigger title to do my job. I don't need any bigger title. And that is any of us. Let's just do our job and let Christ take care of the rest. I was simply decided to be presiding evangelist i talked to mr carl Maneras. his wife probably knows this and he gave me the idea of using this title he said rod he says don't call yourself pastor general that title has a bad feeling in people's minds the way it's been misused and i said what do you suggest and we talked about it together on the phone i knew he was going to come with us and so we came up well i'm an evangelist that was what i was ordained at so he thought the best was presiding evangelist so that's what i am So we want to serve, and I'm here to serve, and each of us in a job has to serve. The government of God, we should practice servant leadership. And I preached on that, and I will later more on that. That's very important. Not lord it over. But nevertheless, we do need to understand the pattern, because we get away from that pattern, we really do get in trouble. And I hope all of you can uh, realize that. Now, so it was continually government from the top down. You'll notice back in Titus chapter 1, turn back to the book of Titus just before the book of Hebrews here, and it tells about the apostle Paul. I ran out of markers here, all these scriptures I'm turning, so I'll just have to flip there myself today. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul tells Titus, a young evangelist, for this reason, verse 5, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint, here it is again, not voting, not politicking, but appoint elders in every city that I commanded you. And then he gives the qualifications, they're to be upright men of good re- reputation. And as they had these other things and they had the fruits of the Spirit and capacity, they were to be appointed. Now turn back to 1 Samuel, brethren, If you would, turn back with me to 1 Samuel, and this is a very important thing back here. Verse 8, 1 Samuel, chapter 8. It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. So Samuel did that. And the name was, he names them then, but his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And so then what did these men do? They did what some have done more recently, not only when Mr. Armstrong got old, they tried to rebel because Ted had a problem, and they rebelled at one point earlier in a way they should not have back in 74, and I had to be loyal in spite of the problem, but try to help hold things together back there. But they tried to do what? They tried to throw the baby out with the bathwater. They tried to change and did change the whole form of government. So they say they all came together. Does it make any difference how many there are? No. It doesn't make any difference if all the ministers come and tried to overthrow me. If God is behind me, I won't be overthrown. Just that simple. Mr. Armstrong, now they're not planning to do that, by the way. I don't want to give any idea that some big thing is happening. It isn't. But mister I'm just using Mr. Armstrong's example. He used to say that every now and then because he sensed it was Ted and others beginning to kind of undermine and him. And he said, well, if all of you do this, he said, I'll go right down the street and straw it over again. And he meant it. I knew he meant it. But anyway, uh, they They were bad. So they all gathered together and said, Look, you're old, and your sons are not. do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king. See, they had a, a spirit-led judge who was kind of a prophet and judge and king all together directly under God and did not have a standing army and all the trappings of royalty, a man who would have the fear of God in a different way. They didn't want that. They wanted a regular king to fight their battles, as they described. And, of course, this displeased Samuel. He was very old, and but he sensed that was going to hurt. It wasn't just he was worrying about his, uh, his vanity. I don't need to worry about my vanity because I may not live too much longer. I'm thinking about the church of God. What does God tell us to do? What is God going to bless us in doing? Not what pleases my vanity. It displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king. What did Samuel do? He prayed to God. He must have poured out his heart to God for hours over days. And the Eternal said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Brethren, from that time on, Israel has been on a downward path. They have not had God's special blessing near as much as if they would have obeyed God. They had it to some degree under David and in the earlier years of Solomon before he turned aside, but not in the way spiritually that they would have had if they had obeyed God and had faithful prophets of God. And now what do they have? Now we have ordained ministers all over the world and especially in the United States claiming to represent Christ who go right along with same-sex marriage and homosexuality and abortion and young people living together and everything else. They just water it down. They're not going to correct anybody about anything. They want to keep their job. They want to be politically correct. So they've watered everything down because of this democratic approach, you see, which is killing the nation. And going to kill any church of God group that practices it. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, God said. So we've got to understand that. That is God's opinion of this kind of thing. And it's very, very clear in His Word. So please understand that, brethren. We should have a leader as Peter was. who was not perfect. And certainly as other servants of God have been and follow that leader... And if something happens to me, you follow and honor Mr. Ames. If the church still continues to preach the truth and do the work and practice the government of God, that is God's way. No other way is God's way. And as we hang together, God will bless us, I know, very, very much. So we've got to do that and practice God's government because that is the very thing that we're training to be part of in a very few years. Turn, let's close in the New Testament here in 1 Corinthians again. 1 Corinthians, this time, I'm going to turn to, of course, one I often use, but it's so important. Chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, verse 1, "...dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints?" Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's why we're called, training, in training, now, to judge the whole world. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? See, the church should do that. And the human leaders in the church, as you look at the previous chapter, the apostle Paul did that. He said in chapter 5, verse 3 about this fornicator, he says, I indeed as absent in body of present in spirit have already judged as though I were present. Put him out in the name of Jesus Christ. Deliver him to Satan. He didn't say we'll have a meeting of the committee. <laughs> he said put him out. It's a sin. So they didn't have all voting and politicking about it. Paul simply carried out the judgment for God. And that is the way it always was on those types of things. Any big major thing of doctrine, why, of course, you should get multitude of counsel, which we do. But the saints will judge the world. We are not unworthy to judge even smaller matters. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? That is our future. That's what we're training for, to judge angels, to judge whole cities, entire nations. We're training now for that. So how much more things that pertain to this life even in the church and situations that come along. So think about that, brethren. We're part of the government of God now. The church is the kingdom of God in embryo, as Mr. Armstrong used to explain. We're not yet born of God, but we're begotten of God. And we're the kingdom of God in embryo. And we who are learning His government today and loyal to His government and actively, loyally, enthusiastically participating. And if you see something you don't like, bring it to the attention in a respectful way of your minister and pray about it. Go to God. But don't try to overthrow the government that God has set. And know and tell your brethren in these other churches, no, we are not all the same. We are not all the same. There is a huge difference because we are training to administer the government of God. How could anyone dream that he would be part of the very government that he is refusing to practice today? You see what I mean? How could you teach that in the world tomorrow if you have not practiced it today? So do that, brethren, and have faith that Christ is alive. He is the head over all things to the church. Show your loyalty to Him by following what He shows clearly in His Word From one beginning, the beginning of the Bible, from one end of the Bible to the end, the right way of the government of God